So, Peter, you're the expert in this category. Do you think I'll be okay for the Seguro Showdown Backyard Ultra after seeing my uh, my big toe? I think you've lost a lot more toenails than I have. Definitely. Uh, I've lost 20 plus toenails. And after seeing yours, it's definitely coming off. I think the real question is, is it going to come off uh, mid-race or post-race? <laughs> Do you think that swelling is a week enough time for that swelling to go down by the time the race rolls around? No, I think you're just going to have to roll with it. Oh just boy. keep it clean. Okay. I'll keep it clean and I'll uh, roll with it and see what happens. Listeners, welcome back to the Distance to Empty podcast. This is the podcast where we lead off talking about losing toenails and running 200 plus mile ultramarathons. I am getting ready to run my first backyard ultra this uh, next weekend here at the Cigarro Showdown. We have a bunch of friends going out. Unfortunately, Peter won't join us, but we have Francis, Gabe, Gabe, Tim, Jose Sosa, and it's going to be a, a fun time out in the desert. Wish you could make it, Peter. Next time. I'll mail you my toenail if it falls off. Appreciate it. Okay, I'm super excited for our guest today. Uh, our guest today is a legendary ultra runner and coach. He's known for his longevity in the sport. For over two decades, he's competed in some of the world's toughest and most competitive ultra races. He's completed nearly 200 ultra marathons, winning over 40 of them. That includes 29 wins at the 100 plus mile distance. In 2022, he ran his first 200 plus mile ultra at the Moab 240. He won that race and set the course record in the process. Uh, this year in 2024, he is towing the line at the Cocodona 250 for his second attempt at the 200 plus mile distance. Without further ado, here's Jeff Browning. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Good. Good to be here. Yeah, we appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Um, can you give us the sort of quick elevator pitch onto how you got into ultra running, what your first race was? Uh, 2001, or I guess I go back to two, year 2000. I, my first uh, really good buddy, and when I first moved to Bend, Oregon, uh, Rod Bean had done uh, a couple, I think he'd done like 150K and he'd done some like five marathons. And I'd always wanted to do a marathon. I'd worked at a running store, like a, a, a specialty running store in college um, that was a bike shop and a running store. And um, we were the specialty running store in my college town. And so I sold shoes, worked retail. And um, and so the owner of our store had run um, like 25 Bostons or something. And, and so that was my introduction to like, kind of distance running, long distance running. And, and so that put a seed that I was going to do a marathon, but I hadn't really heard of ultra marathons and I'd heard of, you know, like Leadville 100 mile mountain bike race. I, I was a mountain biker. I considered myself a cyclist, not a runner, even though I, I, I did run three days a week or four days a week sometimes to stay fit and I had a dog and, but it was like 20 to 40 minute runs, right? Nothing. It was just more lifestyle stuff. Um, and then, um, fast forward to 2000 and I, I, uh, was in Bend, Oregon and, and Rod introduced me. He worked for the North face at the time. And, uh, as a man, like a, like a regional manager and he, and North face was the title sponsor of Western States 100. And that was my introduction to, to actually ultra marathons was Western States 100. Uh, you know, he had told me about 50 K's and 50 milers and all these other races, but we were, he had this like VHS tape, like in like 99, I think. 
uh, North Face did a profile on like three or four of their athletes that were in Western States 100. And it was like a one, one, one hour documentary on Western States. And we used to get together. This is before I had kids and he was, we were both newly married. And um, so we were a couple, our wives worked at the same internet startup in Bend, Oregon. And so we started hanging out like once a week for dinner and he and I would always watch that documentary. Like we probably watched it 20 times and that got the bug in me. And my, so my first, my introduction to ultra running was a hundred miler. And I was like, I want to do that. And, but I, at this point I hadn't even run a half marathon, you know, I'd run a couple five and 10 Ks, but I had not just for fun, you know, like I'd get serious and trained for like two weeks and then I'd run the five K and then I'd go back to biking. And um, and so then I started training for a half marathon, a marathon in 2000, and then piggybacked that training into a, my first 50 K Hag Lake 50 K in February of 2001, um, which is, you know, muddy double 25 K loop around Hag Lake in the, um, coastal range, uh, um, Southwest of Portland. And, um, and that was my introduction to ultra running was like just a muddy February, like slop fest around Hag Lake. Um, I ended up running that race five or six times. Um, it was kind of like an, an annual, like as the, we build up towards races every year and we, that's how I got into it. I, I used that, but I realized when we found out, like once we started getting inter really inter introduced to the details of the sport, um, I realized like, oh, I can't just go sign up for Western States 100. There's a lottery and I've got to qualify with a 50 at the time it was a 50 miler. Now it's hundred K, but at the time it was a 50 miler. And, and, and in the process of like, training, doing a couple 50 Ks and then doing a 50 miler in 2001 to get a qualifier, to get in the lottery in November for Western States. And back then it was, people are going to freak out about this, but 50% chance to get in <laughs> the lottery odds. It was like a flip of a coin. So I both, all of us, it was me and two other guys, my buddy Rod and one of his friends from college, we'd all were dabbling in ultras at the time. Um, I think we we're all newbies and we all got in on, on our first try. And so that was my first hundred in 2002, in June of 2002. And I, you know, I ran, you know, a couple more 50 Ks and a, and a and 100 K to get ready. So I had probably five or six ultras under my belt when I ran my first hundred, I did the typical, you know, build up. And, um, and w by the time I hit that hundred, I was hooked, you know, hooked on the community, hooked on the sport. Um, you know, never thought that two hundreds would be like the evolution you know, that if I, if you had told me that back then, I would have been like shaking my head. No way. I guess fast forwarding then, uh, how did 200s, uh, pop on your radar and, and what drew you to that distance? Well, when they started, when, when Candace came out with the 200s here, you know, with that, you know, her destination races, I, I, I Mike McKnight and I were Mike at the time I introduced Mike to kind of OFM and then this nutritional shift. Cause I'd done it like about, five or six months prior to him. And we, he was the athlete coordinator, or, you know, rep for ultra for the sponsored athletes. And we were on an athlete summit and we had a five, like a four or five hour drive in a, in a passenger van with a bunch of athletes, but I was sitting in the front seat and he was driving and I was so like stoked on like OFM and all this other stuff. And he had just run, I think he had just tried 200s. I think he tried to do 200s before OFM and he was just like swollen and horrible. And he had all kinds of issues going on and, um, and like runner's knee and like tons of inflammation. 
during the during his, I think he tried the triple crown before he did OFM shift, if I recall correctly. And and so he was kind of like in this spot where he was like, I, I want to he, he wanted to hear more. And so we like geeked out um, and we talked a lot. We went on a like one on one run while we were there, just an easy shakeout run and talked about it more. And and then um, kind of that was like the year I launched. That was 2016. So that was the year I launched my coaching business. And he was kind of an early athlete. He came to me and was like, Hey man, I really want to, you know, I had done a bunch of like just talking with him to get him going on it. But then I started coaching him too. And then I coached him to a second triple crown when he got the record. And, and so we were, and I, at the same time, I had a couple other athletes who were more like middle back of the Packers I had been coaching. And so we were all learning, you know, as we went there was no data, right? There were there weren't any podcasts on this. There weren't anybody taught like how do you even train for them? How what what are like strategies? It's funny that you guys this is we're talking about two hundreds because right before this, one of my coaches is coaching someone to Moab two forty this year. Um, one of my coaches, Trish, and um, we just did an hour kind of download on like the basics of training for a 200 because now we have an outline like we you know i not only am coaching like you know two years ago i coached the second to last person um at cocodona and mike who was in second behind behind string bean you know so i had like i had four people that year and they were in all parts of the course and so we really now look at you know look at 100 200 is totally different than we did say even three years ago but that was my kind of introduction to 200s was this was Mike. Mike was my main introduction. And then I had one other back of the Packer was my first co- athlete that I helped coach to a triple crown finish. And he was literally like, you know, back of the pack. He was like, you know, maybe third to the last in the, each one. Um, and he got him done. He was from the East coast and, uh, and he was super busy, you know, uh, uh, business wise. And, and so he didn't, you know, he, he didn't have the training ground, but he, he got it done. Um, and we learned a lot, you know, because every time we do a download after each triple crown, I was getting Mike's perspective in the front and I was getting his perspective in the back. And I'm just like frantically taking notes on every call because I'm trying to say I need to come up with a system, you know, like how do I how do I coach this, you know, when it's a new sport, right? It's not 100. I call it 100 on steroids. Um <laughs> You know, it, it's, there's so many other logistical things that go on. It's gear intensive. It's like, you know, you, a lot of people get little hot spots and blisters at mile 80 and hundred and they just tough it out the last 15 or 20 miles and they're good. And then you just deal with it afterward and let it heal up. But in a hun- 200, you still got 130 miles to go or 110 miles to go. You can't let a blister go. You know, you have to deal with it right on the spot and, and ideally be proactive with foot care so you don't get a blister. Yeah, I think I heard you on a different podcast say that it really shines a light on your weaknesses, right? There's a lot you can get, a, get away with in a 24, 36 hour period that you, you just can't in a 48, you know, 72, 96 hour period. 126 hours, you know? So I've had athletes do 125 something, you know, that that's so many hours out there, five nights out there. It's a lot. I just, so I, I usually finish in the 60 to 70 hour range and I just did tour de Jeans in September and it, broke me. It was 112 hours. I've never done a night four, never done a night five. And it was such a, uh, just a punch to every part of the body. I mean, 
you, you learn quick and it really does like highlight those weaknesses. You're like, well, I, I have to take care of this because it's not going to be over anytime soon. And the coaching philosophy behind it for me has changed. It's evolved over the last three to five years as I've coached it and coached more, more people to it and, and helped crew and helped pace in these things and run them myself. Um, well, I've only run one, but, but it, it gave me even more insight running it. Right. I, I had, I knew it on paper, but I, I didn't, hadn't experienced it. And then just to experience like what you're dealing with. And then I've crewed it too, you know, for like a middle, middle of the packer and, and, and the front of the pack with Mike. And so like, it's, it's, it's hard on the crew. You need a st- crew strategy. The crew needs a sleep strategy, not just the runner. So from, you know, it came onto your radar from coaching and let's say that was back in 2017 when yeah. uh, I think McKnight did it in 2017. Yeah. So it took you about four years to give the distance a try yourself because you were signed up for Bigfoot in 21. Is that correct? Yeah, I got COVID. Got <laughs> on COVID. the way. I, I've heard that story on the way there. So we just turned around and drove all the way back to Flagstaff, the whole family, and like hunkered down for like two weeks. So then why the switch from Bigfoot to Moab over from 21 to 22? What happened was um, uh, the reason I switched, I went that fall and paced Mike um, the last 70 miles of Moab. And seeing Moab and just the, the logistics of living in Flagstaff and only being five hours from Moab versus all the way to Washington, I was like, you know what? My first one, I'm just going to come run. I wanted, and that at, by that time, I'd already we'd had you know two years of Cocodona, and I'm I live in Flagstaff, so I'm like, and I've had runners in it every single year. It's been, it's happened, and so I'm always there. I'm roving all over the course. I'm like at the finish line, and 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 I I've paced Mike on the course, and and so I I I really wanted to. Um, ideally run Cocodona, but I wanted to, I, I wanted to, uh, do my first one, not Cocodona. And I felt like I'm not, I, I like Cocodona. I couldn't wrap my hand, head around it until I was like, okay, I'm going to go run Moab. It's basically almost the same distance and it's at the end of the season. So that lets me, allows me to like run all my normal hundreds that I want to run. Cause I usually run like three or four hundreds a year. So I, I wanted to run my keep my, my kind of tally going of my hundred mile finishes as they, you know, kind of rack up. And so that allowed me to like kind of train the whole season, have a full hundred mile season, and then like use that, use all that hundred mile training to show up at Moab ready. Cause it's in October. So that was really the focus was using my season as a trainer for Moab. And then that gave me the experience and the, and the, and the just like, Oh, that's how it is, you know, to actually do it. And then, so to think through like Cocodona is totally different. You know, the way I would approach it had I done it as my first, I would have made a lot of mistakes that I made at Moab. And, and, and Cocodona is obviously more competitive than Moab. So, and especially this year, it's going to be really competitive. It's got a pretty deep men's field um, for 200s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would argue probably the deepest field we've seen in a 200 in the U.S. Yeah, we have it. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, I was just looking at the list today. Um, I'm like, ooh, it's stacking up. Who do you think second, third, and fourth is after me? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't know who's that. Who that's going to be? It, it it will uh it will not be me. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be fun to see it play out. I say bring it. You better bring your A game. That's what I told Mike. Better bring your A game, dude. Right. <laughs> so with 2022, do, doing a hundred base season and then rolling it into Moab. How how did you shift your training after that hundred training? You know, in, into Moab, and and I guess how how are you? changing up your training for Cocodona separate from, you know, your hundred strategy. This year I'm, I'm running, um, I'm running cold water 100 in like next weekend. Um, so I'm already kind of ramping back up and getting kind of a hundred under my belt, um, here in the winter. And then I'll do more course recon on the first 125 here in the, in the spring. Um, but, uh, that year, um, as far as like, all I did was shift after the last hundred, I just shifted to more like, okay, required kit, carrying a ton of water. Even if I, you know, even if I was doing a training run where it's like, oh, there's water spigots or I could go fill up, you know, and not carry as much weight, I would load up, you know, and carry three, four liters of water and get used to like logistics of that, right? And just the, the what that feels like to run with like, four liters of water and how do you carry four liters of water, you know, and all your gear, um, and still have a minimal, a more minimal pack. You know, I, I worked directly with Ultraspire um, because we'd already come out with the Bronco race fest, which was a five liter, but I came to them and said, Hey, I, you know, I want to do Moab. And, and I, the, the current packs in the category for a 200 are too big and too heavy. I don't want to wear those. Can we, can we just add some stuff to the five liter race vest and make it a 12 liter vest and, and in the, under the same concept. And, and that way I would have a race vest, right? Still. So a very, fairly light vest. And so that the, the 12 liter big Bronco came out of that collaboration with Bryce, who's the owner and kind of founder and designer at, at, at Ultraspire. And that's kind of where that, that pack, like it debuted the testing for that was, a, a Moab 240 pack. Um, and so that's where that came from. And, and so I was like using that pack. I was trying to figure out where gear goes, where water goes, you know, in a 12 liter, cause you gotta be really efficient and you gotta have really light, small packable get kit. You know, I geeked out, you know, I'm, I'm not sponsored by clothing anymore. Um, you know, just ultra as footwear. And so, um, I, I went online and I started like going to ultra light, pack, you know, you know, fast packing sites and looking at all the pieces out there and like, okay, what, what's the lightest micro down on the market? What's the light, you know, what's a light waterproof hooded jacket, light waterproof pants, you know, over mitts, trying to find everything that's like packs down to like nothing and that can still fit a full kit, you know, like a, almost like a UTMB kit, right? With a down and water. How do you do that in a 12 liter, right? So just like geeking out on, on gear and weight and where stuff goes and, and testing it in, in the field. Yeah. I think, you know, f physically speaking, the training between a hundred and a 200 is not terribly different, but it is so much more logistics and it is that like, where do things go? What things do I need? And these things cost time. Like, you know, if you're not, if you don't have that dialed, you're going to spend time on the course, yeah. um, figuring it out, out there. 
getting into Moab 240 a little bit, how did the race go for you? I think you, I know you were very clear afterwards that you're going for the course record. Is that something that you were vocal about beforehand? Yeah. I mean, that was, I, that was definitely a goal, um, was to go after the course record. Um, and, um, I, cause I had my own splits. I was, I was running my own race. I didn't worry about anyone else. And, and it ended up being kind of like on my own up front the whole time. Um, but I just was trying to, trying to get the course record. So I, I just focused on, on splits mainly and strategy. And how did the race go for you from mile hundred to one forty? Were there any highs and lows that were different than, you know, your typical hundred mile or anything that was unexpected or that you didn't anticipate? I think number one, bad sock choice. Um, I wore wool, like micro wool, like socks. And I should have done like cool max cause it was so hot that year. We had like kind of a three days of heat. The first three days were like the hottest on record for that race. I think they've had a hotter first day, but then it cooled off from day two and three, but it was consistently hot like three days in a row. Um, I, I just had, you know, my feet got like heat rash um, on day one and through that hot spot in like Indian Creek area. Now they're starting it at noon for just for that fact, that's a very unsupported section, like 50 miles with like a water only in there and, and maybe one other aid station. It's, it's a pretty hard section. There's no crew access. And so, you know, I, that whole section, just like, I just tried to get through it and not like making stupid mistakes. But I, by evening I was having like, man, what's wrong with my feet? And I thought I had a blister and I looked and I had all these like little blisters like on the sides of my heel, you know, under your kind of, uh, ankle bone. And I was like, what the heck, you know? And so I like doctored it in the field and, you know, I had a little blister kit. I stopped in the middle of the night, sat on a rock, kind of put some Luco tape over it and then continued on. And then I just continued to kind of like act up. And then I finally switched to like cool max socks and, and it started, it never got any worse. Um, but that I didn't do that until Shay. And so the damage was already done. And, and so then I was dealing with it the rest of the race. And so that was another learning experience for me as a, as a, as not only a coach, but also an athlete. It's like, okay, little mistakes on day one, like a bad gear choice can like come back to haunt you for the next like 40 hours. And that's not very fun. So like, you know, having things tried and true and tested um, as much as you can. And there's some stuff you're just not going to be able to know and it's going to happen. And you just got to deal with it in the field. And that's part of two hundreds, right? You, you just can't know, but that was a big one. And I didn't really know it was a heat rash, like exactly what it was until about, um, mile one forty. I can't remember that aid station. It's in the middle of that gravel road section. It's a dry um, valley or windy. Yeah. Or what, yeah. Not dry valley, but the next one, whatever the yeah. next one is. Um, that one, like they had a, they had a medical person on staff there and she was doctoring feet and I came in and told her what was going on. Um, and she gets my, I get my socks off and she's like, Oh, this is, this is heat rash. And, and see all these little tiny, you know, blisters. These are, this is all just heat rash. And I was like, Oh yeah. And she goes, they're just gonna, you're just gonna have to deal with them. You know, you're just gonna have to keep like anytime anything like flares up, you're gonna have to tape it and then, you know, cover it up. And that was working, but you know, the other thing that I was, that I couldn't plan for was, um, and you know, I, this goes back to what we, you, you mentioned earlier, your, your weaknesses 
come out. Um, I had like kind of metatarsalgia on my right foot, you know, second med head felt like I had a giant blister on the ball of my foot, take my sock off and it, there's nothing there. So it's like, I was almost like feeling bruised and, and it was really, it didn't really start to bother me until about the last 25 miles to where it was affecting my stride a little bit and, and, and my pace. Um, I tried to tough it out, tried to like, you know, pick up the pace a little bit, maybe a different pace will help. And, and that just made it flare up even more. And I finally stopped with like about, I don't know, maybe 10 miles to go and sat down and just took a blister shield patch, put it on there and then put a piece of Luco tape over it. And that just, it went from like an eight or a nine out of 10 to about a five out of 10 because it, it changed the pressure point. And, you know, if you're in a, in a, in a 200 at that point, that late in a race and an eight out of 10 becomes a five out of 10, you're like, Oh yeah. Huge. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I just had, I just had to kind of like get through it, you know, that last like 10 to 15 miles. Um, but I'm hoping to overcome that at Cocodona that that's hopefully that doesn't become an issue too bad. I I'm hoping I've kind of figured it out, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, Moab with a porcupine rim to finish that that's uh that's gotta be rough on. A, on oh a man. Wrist. It was, but. it was, I mean, I remember thinking, Actually, when I taped it, it was seven miles to go because I remember thinking right before I taped it, I was thinking, I was looking at like what our pace was and like how fast I was running. I was like, this is going to be the longest seven miles of my life, you know, because I was taking walk breaks, a lot more walk breaks. I had a huge lead at that point. So I could have just walked it in, but I wasn't willing to walk it in. I'm like, I don't want to walk it in. I want the record. And so like, so then it was like, I got to, I just got to tough it out. And then I finally was like, maybe if I just try to look and tape it or something, maybe it'll help. You know, I was desperate and that happened to just be just the thing, just enough. Well, thankfully Cocodona, the finish isn't quite as nuts as porcupine rim. No, it's not. It's not the same. Yeah. It's so yeah. there's a lot of soft single track on the AZT and you know, besides, besides Eldon, but. Oh, it's not too bad. Yeah. It's short. It's not that long. So, so maybe switching gears here away from Moab um, and on to coaching. So you've been coaching. It, it sounds like you started in 2016 or so. Can you can you talk about your, your philosophy and, and maybe how that's changed, you know, between when you started and now? Um, I, I mean, I think f- overall philosophy hasn't changed that much. You know, I, I as far as like how I coach, as far as like, uh, you know, training, as far as training goes. I mean, we've done some like fine tuning and that kind of thing. You know, it's it's. It, you know, kind of umbrellas, 80, 20 rule, 80%, you know, aerobic, 20% above aerobic. Um, unless they're, you know, injury prone, then there's going to be a lot of aerobic, uh, with very, very, very strategic, maybe strides or something. But, you know, those, the other part of my philosophy is strength and mobility. You know, that's been something in my own, um, my own career that has been, I feel like been like, a beneficial or almost, uh, uh, it's something that has kept me in the game in my early fifties and into my fifties, um, and kept me competitive, um, because I embrace that side of things. You know, I'm in the weight room three days a week and I do mobility in the weight room, a mobility routine, then a strength routine, um, and that kind of stuff. So that, that definitely is something that's part of my coaching philosophy. Um, I, I definitely believe in that wholeheartedly, 
The other piece of coaching um, that I definitely embrace is kind of a, um, the OFM approach or the ancestral eating approach, you know, animal-based, um, high fat, low carb, but strategic carb that OFM kind of coaches. And that's, you know, optimized fat metabolism. So you're using strategic carbohydrates from fruits and starches like potatoes and sweet potatoes and a little white rice to like time it around effort and volume. So when glucose uptake is really good and, um, and then, you know, on easy days or rest days, I'm a little more low carb and, but I err on the side of higher protein. So I, you know, those days are going to be more carnivore keto. Um, and, and then, um, inter some intermittent fasting with like, you know, fasted runs at the end of that window, um, strategically here and there, not, not every day and not like a bunch of times a week, but you know, maybe once a week or twice a week, depending on training cycle and intensity, it's going to be on low intensity days where you're just forcing that, that fat metabolism to really like rev up. Um, and that, you know, th that's going to be super beneficial for these longer races, especially anything over 50 or hundred K. With your coaching, have you noticed an increase in athletes seeking out help for these 200 plus mile multi-day races? And why do you think that is? Um, I don't know why <laughs> it is, that, 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 that it's, it's getting more popular. Right. I think it's the, it's the adventure of it, I think is part of it, you know, cause it, it, you know, especially for like, you know, the, the back half of the pack, it's more of like, it's more like a supported run slash fast pack, right? It, they're, they're still running, but they're doing a lot of hiking. You know, they've got to have, they have to have a longer sleep, a, 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 I would say a more dialed sleep strategy. Um, because of how many nights they're going to be out. Um, but I also think, you know, people are always looking for the next thing and the next big challenge and adventure and, and two hundreds are part of that. You know, it's not as intense as far as the effort goes over the whole long haul. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a supported long, long fast pack, you know, and just going really, and not even having to carry that full kit that you would have to in a fast pack. So you actually are light enough. You can run some, um, I think there, there's definitely, that's a, what's an alluring about it. Um, as far as coaching goes, I, I mean, I think probably because I've coached Mike and I've coached a lot of different 200 mile runners now, and I've run it myself as a coach. Um, I think people trust that, you know, trust that experience. They trust, you know, the track record as far as like the success we've, we've kind of like been, um, able to cultivate as, as a coaching business with 200s. You know, one of my coaches, Remo, um, is also out of Austin, Texas. He's run a, a bunch of 200s, Badwater finisher, you know, he's, I don't know. So, you know, he's, he's a successful 200 mile runner too. And he and I are, you know, as coaching staff, we're, we're trading notes all the time um, on what we can do better, sleep strategies, tinkering, always like, hey, what do you think of this? Like, testing like oh should we sleep on night one should we skip night one you know like all those philosophies and up until now up until the last you know maybe year and a half like the kind of like the masses were all going well you just need to sleep at like you know somewhere in the 30 to 40 hour range you need to get your first nap well we're starting to see that no that's probably not the case it's actually for most people it's going to be at least some kind of nap on night one like in the like late in the night when you're really tired before dawn and, and just to trick that body into thinking it got a night of sleep. Right. And so that way you're not messing 
with your your melatonin levels as much, right? It's kind of resetting the system. It's like a biohack, right? On night one. So you don't, so that way you have more on night two and then, and then having another sleep strategy on night two and another one on night three, you know, and you know, for those back half of the Packers, we're, we're saying like, you know, you need to try to get 90 minutes if you can, right? That's a, like a battle rim cycle. And if you can get that great, the later we're finding like day night three, night four, your body's so fatigued, it can't get comfortable. So it like, they only, might only get 45. They might lay down for 90, but they might only, you know, they might wake up at 45 minutes. Well, we're coaching them like, well, if you wake up at 45 minutes, get up, like just get up, get moving again. You're not going to be able to fall back asleep probably. So it's because you're, you're at that point, you're, you know, you like it just even after a hundred, you're, you never get good night's sleep the night, first night. You're like, you're, you know, you're kind of like uh, uh, bouncing awake all the time and waking up every 20 or 30 minutes. So you've talked a little bit about how um, your coaching has changed the past couple of years as, as you've learned more. You even just mentioned a couple of things. What about you racing Moab? What did, what did you take from your own experience doing a 200? And what did you learn from that that you've now applied to how you, you coach your athletes? Uh, sleep strategy is one, like just more dialed sleep strategy. Um, you know, we are already coaching proactive foot care and, um, you know, having three or four pairs of shoes broken in with 30 to 50 miles on them. So you have like kind of like a little, you know, quiver of shoes to choose from, um, that kind of stuff. Um, I think the, the, uh, the other kind of piece that I, the biggest piece I walked away from Moab for me personally was like nutrition and hydration and, and electrolyte balance gets way more difficult after about 40 hours. It just cause you can't, your short-term memory goes out the window, right? So if you're doing some kind of system where it's like, okay, I want, and we coach our athletes like so much sodium per liter and we're dialing that into the individual, like a custom kind of system for that individual through some testing, you know, of like what's their salt concentration per liter of sweat. And then we're also looking at their sweat per rate per hour based on a home scale test in, in training and, and putting those two pieces together and then coming up with a, a system like a base hydration and nutritional system based on temperatures during the day, highs and lows and what their sweat rate is according to their tests. We have them start a spreadsheet and that way they can kind of like go off that spreadsheet. And so they have a guesstimate based on, you know, the, the weather forecast for the race window. Um, and so they can have a, a really good like ballpark guesstimate of what they should be drinking per hour and how much um, sodium per liter they're drinking for that, for them. Now in the past, we used to coach that as more of like, Hey, you know, when you're halfway through your flask, you're halfway through like half liter, take a salt pill, right. Or, or something to keep that sodium coming in with the concentration per liter. But what I found is that system breaks down after about 40 hours. I can't even remember if I just took a pill. Right. It's like, did I just take that pill or was that like an hour ago or was that the last? I don't remember. You know, and you can't remember your brain is like it's fried. Right. And so just like I really dialed in. I did a deep dive after Moab in 2022 into like high custom hydration, the scale test really dialing it in for the individual. And it's really cool because that's brought out a lot of data from each individual athlete to see that how individual sweat rate is per hour per individual. 
it's so different. You know, I, I did just to give you a, a, like a quick example, like I have an athlete, um, I have an athlete at, who at 55 degrees or I, at, for me personally at 55 degrees, I lose about 750 milliliters. He loses a liter and a half. Wow. So that means his drink rate is double mine at the same temperature. It's just his logistics are different than mine. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that piece for the individual goes a long way once we get past like that 30, because you can make mistakes in 24 to 36 hours and still be okay. But it, when you start keep making those mistakes, you know, over drink at night when you're not sweating as high, your sweat rate's not as high or under drinking in the heat of the day, um, you know, those kind of things. Cause the problem with over drinking and one of the issues I had at Moab was I had a lot of like, um, cellular, um, uh, and this is probably one of the reasons that I got some like more blisters too, is I had, um, a lot of edema, meaning I, I just retained a ton of water. Well, what happened was on day one, this was out of my research on day one, I was drinking the proper amount, about a liter an hour, a little over to, to help me get through that heat. But then as I went into the night, I should have been backing off that drink rate because after testing my sweat rate, you know, at 40 degrees at night, it should only be a half a liter an hour. Well, there was still like, I was still like in this mindset, it's, it was hot today and I'm drinking a ton. Well, then by day two, I've got like swollen lower legs. My hands are swollen, you know, puffy face. And what, because once, once you have all that extra, you know, fluid in it, it the body's like, well, I, I can, the only way I can get rid of it is to pee it out. Well, that takes time. I can only pee so much every time. I'm not getting enough out, you know? So then my, my excretion rate isn't fast enough to get rid of it. And I'm peeing like every 10 minutes trying to get rid of it. The body's trying to normalize, right? So what's it do with that extra fluid? It stores it in tissue. Well, then you're at higher risk for blisters because you have more fluid in the tissue, right? In the layers of skin. And so then, then you're, then things are going to rub and then there's going to be a, you know, big fluid filled blister, right? And so I had all that kind of stuff going on, <clears throat> on, on day two and into day three. So, um, that's stuff that like, since then, I think I've remedied, um, and really dialed in more. So that probably hydration and strategy and nutrition and actually putting sodium with my like liquid calories per liter. So I don't even have that. I take like having to take a pill off the table, you know, unless I'm chugging an extra bottle of water and I just need to mineralize that water. I'm just going to pop like a succeed cap or something and then chug a half a liter of water. And that's going to offset that one half liter I drank. Right. And then I go back to my normal system and that system in my, in my vest is, you know, one, one half liter has calories and electrolytes. That's enough electrolytes for that whole liter I'm drinking. And the other has water. And so I'm sipping each equally and I'm drinking them equally down. And that's kind of my system. So you mentioned, you know, athletes are often searching for the next big thing. And from the perspective of a coach, like how do you approach athletes and set expectations for those athletes who are looking to do multiple 200 plus mile races in a calendar year? And I guess how different is racing two, three, four, even five, two hundreds in a year versus doing that many hundreds? Um, just the recovery from two hundreds is just, it's, it's kind of exponential. And I think a lot of it is the sleep deprivation, right? That you just don't, once you, you don't get it, once you lose those nights, like you don't really get them back. Right. And so it's going to be a while, like your body's going to be like pretty broken down and pretty tired. 
Um, you might have some like nerve stuff going on in feet, you know, and all kinds of weird stuff from just that extra, you know, extra time out on your feet without sleep, right? Because we recover when we sleep. So then, you know, we're, we're kind of double whammying our body during that window of racing because you're not only not recovering because you're not sleeping, you're also getting the fatigue and sleep deprivation. And then it takes a long time to recover from that. So you're kind of in la la land for a week after the, after the 200. And whereas at a hundred, you know, I'm like back, you know, pretty normal within a couple of days, you know, I can be back working and be fine. I might be a little t- extra tired, you know, but, um, but it's not horrible. You know, my wife, you know, I've done 51 hundreds finishes and my wife, after 23 years of ultra running, she's pretty used to like what I'm like after hundred. Cause I do four or five a year. And, and she's like, you just bounce, you bounce back so quick. She goes in the 200 is like, you were, you didn't look good, you know, for a, for a while. Like, and you didn't act good either, you know, for like, you were like complaining for like a week afterwards and, and sl- taking naps and, you know, and so like, it's just harder on you. So like setting those expectations and understanding that if you're going to plan your season, like that recovery period's a lot longer afterwards. And if your nutrition's not dialed in, it's going to be even longer, right? That's the one thing we've seen because we coach so many OFM athletes um, that we see them compared to our non-OFM athletes and they just, non-OFM athletes, you know, two months after the 200 are still just like hammered mentally, physically, whereas the, the OFM athletes who are really eating a really high nutrient dense animal-based diet are like bouncing back, right? And we started to have see some research come out in the last couple of years on protein and protein intake and high protein intake and how we can really, like it just aids in recovery. And that's probably why, where we're seeing the benefit is the, you know, just really high protein, high nutrient dense, um, foods that they're eating and they're not eating a lot of junk. They're not eating inflammatory foods like seed oils, you know, and sugar in their everyday diet. I think that's probably helping with bounce back. So most of the athletes are kind of trying to go after like triple crown or multiple 200s in a year that we're coaching. Most of them, probably I would say 80 plus percent of those are OFM athletes and they're, they're leveraging diet to recover and get ready for the next event. And, and that helps a lot. Now, the ones that aren't, um, we're still guiding them through it. I had one athlete that did trip crown this last year, and he's not an OFM athlete. But after the experience, um, he's more open to tinkering with his diet because of seeing how hammered he was after races, right? Um, and, and how that could be different, right? The potential, I guess, for that to be different if he does tinker. The pro- the biggest thing is, is just having the willpower and the want to, your own personal revelation of like, I need to give this like a 12-week like cycle to try it. You know, it can't be like two weeks. You're not going to get any benefit in two weeks, but you'll see huge benefit in 12 weeks. So, you know, if you gave it a 12-week challenge, you, you would come out of that one, you'd learn all your new comfort foods, all your, how to eat, what to eat. You know, there's a lot, there's a big learning curve and we do coach that. We coach an OFM only kind of eight week course, um, that I, I offer to kind of guide athletes into like, okay, what do you do? How do we do it? We do it in a phased approach. And, and then I guide them through them with like coaching calls every two weeks. And then, you know, with some like, you know, leave behind one pager, 
four page kind of PDFs that they can kind of use as reference stuff. And then kind of just helping them like navigate that change in their lifestyle. And then they, and then they come out the other end with like all these tools and know how to do it. And, and then once they know it, it's like fly be free. I don't need to coach you anymore on that. Like, you know, we're going to talk about race nutrition. We're going to talk about, you know, strategy during that too. You know, even though we're only coaching OFM, we're also coaching them in how to, to, to what nutrition to use during a race, which is all, you know, mostly carbs and carbs and electrolytes and fluid and all that. Like, so we're talking them through that strategy, but also their lifestyle. Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of how we're looking at it. Like, you know, we, we definitely have a, a, a kind of a unique niche lens that we're approaching these multi multi two hundreds in a year because we're really leveraging our daily nutrition to help with recovery. So let's, let's talk about Cocodona. So you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you really wanted experience outside of Cocodona in the 200 distance, which is why you, you did Moab, you know, this past year, you also did uh, Sedona Canyons 125. So what, what experiences from those are you, are you taking into Cocodona and what's your approach going to be, uh, for, for training? Um, well, I, I mainly ran one, the 125 just to see the last 125 miles in one push. I like, I, when they, when they announced that, I'm like, Oh, I'm doing that. Like, uh, that's how, that's how I'm going to scout. Cause I'd already told my wife that, well, she, after COVID or, or after Moab, she didn't want me, I, I go, I want to do Cocodona. She's like, I'll, so she knows me. We've been married for 26 years together for 30 years. So she knows me really well. And she also knows how to manipulate me. And, and so she just said, um, how old are you? You're turning 52 this year. Um, how many hundred mile finishes do you have? 46. Um, so you just have to do six hundreds in one year and you've, you've equaled your age in hundred mile finishes. And so of course, I go, what? Well, that's a good idea. And so what did that do? That put hundred milers on my whole season, no two hundreds. Um, and so that got me not running a 200 in 2020 or 200 plus in 2023. Uh, but even with that, you know, I, I, I was like, I'm still running Cocodona, you know, it's just, we're just postponing it a year. Um, and so that's really kind of why it got postponed to 2024. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad it did. I, you know, I, I, I really wanted to just kind of like let that settle, you know, let that soak in, enjoy hundreds again for a season, um, and then turn around and, and train for Cocodona. So I will, some of the things I'll do different, like some of the things I, I have planned to do is just scout the first 125 especially the, the Bradshaws. I'm going to run every inch of that before race day this spring, just to know, cause I know that's a crux, right? That first 37 is to crown King is, is burly. It's the hot, it's super hot. It's, you know, 25% of the climbing. Um, and, and I know that one is where a lot of people get slapped down. I've watched Mike fall apart on that section every year. And, you know, every year he's been in it, I've gotten a call on Monday night with him, like, man, I think I'm going to drop. I, I think I'm done. And, uh, and I'm like, uh, dude, nope, you, you're going to be fine. Just like, you know, get your head on straight. Uh, you know, when you, it's weird. Two hundreds are weird because you're getting a phone call from someone who's good, actually ends up winning the race and getting the course record. He's calling and walking, you know, and he's like, I think I'm going to drop, you know, 
And I was like, just get to the next aid station, sleep, reset. And you still got plenty of time. Like, and that's what he did. He went and slept for two hours and, and then laid around for another half an hour, I think afterwards talking to his wife. Like, I think I want to drop, you know? And then of course, Sarah's awesome because she's like, she'll just like manipulate him to not drop. Like one year at Moab, one year at Moab, I got to tell a side story. One year at Moab, that long section, that 50 some mile section at the beginning, Mike was, it was a, it was a cold year where they had some storms and, and he has that rod in his back from that skiing accident and where he broke his back. And so there's times when it flares up and it was flaring up in the first, you know, 70 miles of that race. And he was trying to drop. And, um, and I think it was the section where you go into Shea's, right? So it's like from uh, Indian Creek to Shea. So that's like a 50 mile section with no crew, right? And so that's the last place you're gonna see crew. So if you're gonna drop, you gotta drop there, right? Or you gotta drop at Shea, you gotta go another 52 miles or something. So she basically, he was sitting there saying, I wanna drop, I wanna drop, right? And she just, and I was supposed to come pace him that year. And that was the year it was a snow course and he got, he, he still has the fastest time because it was an alternate course and it was less climbing and they didn't go way up in the, in the San Juans like they normally do. But point is he ended up winning that year, but he was going to drop and he, and, and she just looked at him and goes, you're not dropping, turned around, walked, got in her truck, backed out, left him standing there. <laughs> he was like, I guess I got to run to the Shay, you know? Um, so, you know, that's another piece I would say of strategy of 200s is having a good crew, yeah. a crew that's not going to baby you, a crew that's not going to like give you permission to quit, you know, you know, that's going to go, oh, well, it's okay if you want to, you know, you should want to drop. It's all right. You know, like you, you got to manipulate that crazy person that's in the fatigue state. Yeah. Crew is essential. And that's, that's a really cool story. Uh, I think one of my favorite stories from Cocodona last year is I, I was in a really shitty headspace. I had just, I was wrapping up the uh, Mingus descent, which no one likes. And you pulled up in your truck. I'm not sure if you remember this. And, you know, you were cheering on and I was like, hey, good luck in the 125. Like, come catch me and we'll run together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. And uh, you want to tell when you caught me? What was it? What was going on? Okay, I caught you this would have been probably, so this is after 229 at Walnut can at Walnut Canyon mm -hmm. aid station. You come out of that, you kind of wind around up in the, you know, on the plateau in the Ponderosas and you come to I 40 tunnel. So there's a tunnel that goes under I 40, which, and then you come out. Um, and then eventually you kind of bounce across a side road and then onto the AZT. Um, and I was looking for you all the whole time. I was like, and I'd heard you were ahead of me. And I, and I was like, okay, I'm going to catch you, man. This is going to be fun. And I get there and I didn't even know it was you. Cause you were curled up in like, like fetal position in the concrete of the tunnel <laughs> and, and um, taking a nap and your pacer. I don't remember who it was, but he was like, he's like, Kevin's right there. That's Kevin. He's going to be so bummed. You're passing while he's sleeping. Um, but yeah, that's uh, right. I think I caught you at like two. It probably at that point is probably like two thirty-five or something. Yeah, I was so bummed. That was my pacer, Gabe, um, and he woke me up shortly thereafter and was like, "Hey, come on, we got to go chase Jeff." And you know, yeah, I think you only ended up finishing twenty, thirty minutes ahead of me, so I probably could have hung for a little while. You could have, uh, but that uh, that nap was essential. I had just moved into sixth place, chasing fifth. 
and uh, I was like falling over, so tired. It was so cold that I couldn't sleep. And then when we got in that tunnel, you know, those tunnels hold heat a little bit. So it was like a little pocket of warmth. And I was like, I got to lay down here. This is it. And that like, I had a seven, eight minute nap. Like I was able to push hard from there to the finish. So, um, but yeah, it's, it was ama- funny. it's amazing what a seven or eight minute nap will do. Oh, it's crazy. Especially that late in the race. Yeah. So, you know, we touched on the competition this year at Cocodona a little bit earlier. Is that something like, how much do you focus on that? How much do you think about that? Is it, does it factor into your strategy or is it, you know, are you out there running your own race from the get go? I mean, I'm running my own race. I do like to look at like who is going to be in it. So I just mentally am prepared for that for, to just analyze like what the lace might look like, right. Who might go out hard, who might not go out hard, where they're going to be in the pack, you know, that kind of thing. And then just kind of focus it, you know, obviously I'm going to run my own race. You have to, you have to run your own race. You have to have your own strategy. You have to run your own race and you have to stick to it. And sometimes you might have to tweak that plan later in the race as the race unfolds, right? In the last 100K or something. But but you definitely, the first 100 or 120, the first half of that race, you got to run your own race and you got to take care of yourself and you got to do your thing and, and not get caught up in someone else's race. That's a good way to like make big mistakes. And so I will run my own race for sure. Um, but definitely like with as many good 200 mile plus runners that are in the men's race this year. Um, it's definitely an extra motivator in training. I would say, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not a soft field. No, it's, it's, it's intimidating to me. I mean, I, I definitely get anxious about it. It is a motivator in training, but I, I, if I'm being honest, I think about it more than I would like to. Yeah. I'd see, I've never had that problem, you know, just like over the years, even in hundreds, I, I just, it, it's such, there's such long distances that you just have to run your own race and can't get caught up with it. And then you just have to like, let it unfold on race day. And then, then, you know, you got to let your warrior inner warrior come out in the second half. So do you think, uh, 200s are, are here to stay, you know, with new, with 200s popping up every year, new 200s, like, is this the evolution of this kind of adventure racing trail running ultra ultra distance or are they you know do you think they're more of a fad that are having their moment right now i think they're here to stay i think they're hard enough and they're and we're starting to figure them out more so there's more there's more knowledge going into them right even from a coaching perspective i mean we look at like you know some of the some some coaches in in the industry right like two out of my four coach or three i have four coaches counting myself on my in under my umbrella and, and three of us have run two hundreds, you know, um, one of us has run a ton of hundred, two multiple two hundreds. Um, Jason Coop's run two multiple two hundreds now as a coach, right? So we've got coaches that actually have experienced what it is to do 200 or a 250 mile race and finish it and, and what it takes, you know, and, and the kind of training, that it takes to get there and what type, how to think about these races. You know, we have a page of notes, you know, that we say, okay, here are the basics of a 200 coach, coaching a 200, the things that your athletes need to think about. They need to figure out this strategy and this gear strategy and this sleep strategy and this caffeine strategy and this nutrition and hydration strategy and your crew strategy. And, you know, all these little things that all these moving parts, right. We've talked about like it being like a hundred on steroids, the logistics are what I'm talking about. 
not only is it really difficult because of the sleep deprivation for the athlete, but just the logistics of running that far, whether you have a crew or whether you have, you're running off drop bags, the logistics and the gear intensity of that, of this, this distance is crazy. Um, but like anything, you know, I just talked to Jesse Haynes last week, right? He and I catch up on the phone every once in a while, just randomly call each other and, and catch up. And we were talking about a race season and he was, we were talking about two hundreds and, and that how crazy and they hurt and, and how hammered you are afterwards, but the, it's a puzzle and you got to figure it out. Like, how do we figure this stupid little puzzle out? Like, I think I can, you know, he was like, I'm thinking about signing up for Moab again. Like, he goes, I just think I can run faster. You know, and so like if I did this different and this different and turn, you know, you turn this screw a half a turn and that screw a half quarter turn. And then the next thing you know, you're like, oh, man, I just took four hours off my time. Um, so like, I, you know, there's just so there's so much room for improvement in them. I think that's what's really cool about them. And I think the only thing I see negative is it's putting on some athletes. It puts so much focus at least I see this on my own roster, coaching roster. They, they're so focused on 200s that they kind of lose the beauty of the 100. And the 100-mile distance is just such a sweet distance because it's, it's, it's long enough to just logistically be tough, to mentally be tough, you know, but it, it, it definitely is still just such a cool distance. And... And I think they really do make you a better 200 mile runner. We are just, I was just joking with my athletes who just did the triple crown this last year. Um, Scott Jenkins from um, London. And he, he was like, we were just talking about like how your perspective changes after you've run a 200 or two or run the triple crown, like signing up for a hundred. It's like, Oh yeah, it's just a hundred, you know, like just to say that it's just a hundred, man. I'm just going to jump in it, you know? Um, but it does change your perspective a little bit. And, and I think that's, um, a really cool thing too, right? It, it's weird, but it's also kind of a cool aspect of after, after you've experienced a 200, all of a sudden hundreds don't seem so intimidating. Um, and, and you can kind of like go, Oh, I'm going to use that as a training run at a buildup race for this 200 I'm training for, um, which is what we were, you know, in the discussion about in, in our coaching call. So are there any other ultra endurance uh, challenges that you haven't done yet that are on your list? <laughs> That's endless. Um, uh, I want to do Bigfoot. I want to do Tahoe. Um, I really would like to do tour. Um, I, I, I have a list of hundreds. I still want to do. I want to do, I'm tough. Um, and I want to go back to Ozark 100. You know, I did it the, the, the inaugural year, but it was in November when everything's covered up with leaves. And now it's in October when actually that you can see the trail and, and the leaves are changing. So, um, and, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in Missouri. So like running in the Ozarks um, during the fall is, you know, pretty cool. Um, I have some FKT ideas that I want to do, some longer trail stuff. Um so it, just, I, it, I mean, I, can, I don't know. I can't even pick one. There's so many, you know, I just kind of like every year kind of go, well, this is the one thing I'm going to do this year new or two things I'm going to do new. And then, you know, um, 
let my season kind of unfold on then fill in the blanks where I need to train and where I need races. Based on that list, it sounds like 200s are, are part of your future plan. Oh, definitely, man. I mean, there's such, there's, it's such a, it's a gnarly cool, like puzzle that I, I know I, I've used that term multiple times now, but it is such a puzzle that you're trying to figure it out. And it, it, I don't know if you, you're never going to nail it. You're never going to figure it out fully, but but you can like you can definitely have so much room for improvement because the distance is so long. Just like in a hundred, people can you know by their third hundred compared to their tenth hundred, you know they're going to be way more dialed in by ten. It, but it's the same with a two hundred. Like every time you just do one exponentially, you're going to learn more things and, and be able to fine tune. So we're we're going to wrap things up with a, a quick five questions here. So rapid fire, quick answers, whatever comes to the top of your head. Um, the first two might be tough for you because you've run nearly 200 ultras. So it doesn't have to actually be the true answer. Just whichever one pops in first. All right. So highest high in a race ever. Uh, highest high in a race. Uh, I'd say there's two, uh, winning hard rock. Um, and racing into the top 10 at Western States in 2019. Um, at that year, uh, was just a crazy throwdown. The men's top 10 went all under 16 hours. I, I ran 1555 for ninth. Um, it was a throwdown for eighth, ninth and 10th and seventh through 10th were a minute and 57 seconds apart at the end. So I was in ninth, seventh, eighth and ninth. We were all on the track at the same time. Wow. And so it was just insane. I've never thrown down for that hard for that long. Just to just, you know, just aggro, like where you're just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And then like, okay, I got to yeah, hydrate. I need some calories. Okay. Push, push, push. You know, it's just so much pushing, you know, even in the last mile and a half in town, as you hit Roby point, I ran that uphill mile in seven ten and ran the downhill half mile at five fifteen pace to the track. Like, that was, it was so intense. Um, and I hit the track and normally, you know, the, the three years preceding I'd been in the top 10, my kids were always at the track and they're waiting for dad to run three quarters away around the track. And we, and we always had like a 10 minute lead on the next person or, you know, there that person wasn't in sight. And by that time I'd kind of gapped whoever I passed enough that I didn't have to be stressed out on the track. And so we had, they had gotten used to three years of like, Hey, we're jogging and high-fiving people and you know, that kind of thing. And I hit the track and I'm like, I'm sorry guys, but we gotta run, you know, because like Kyle Piatari's like right behind me. Um, so it was, it was awesome. Um, I'd say that that one has to be up there as far as a high. So lowest low in a race. Two come to mind again. Um, Moab, that last seven, oh, it hurt. Um, like just the pain cave I was in and trying to like mentally deal with that, you know, mentally, emotionally, you're strung out, you're tired. Like it's just a really hard, it was a hard space to be in. Um, and then I think the other one would be uh, uh, Ultra Fjord in 2015 in uh, Patagonia. Um, I, I won the the inaugural 108 miler and I got trench foot and it was just 
some of the gnarliest weather, six major river crossings, peat bogs, mud bogs. It was like, we got rained on for like 10 hours. Um, had to cross a, had to cross a, 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 a glacier with open crevasses that weren't marked. <laughs> the Chileans are crazy. Um, they just aren't scared. It's just their norm, you know, but you bring people from international there that have never been on a glacier and don't know how to read a glacier. It's like, you're, that's a recipe for disaster. So like, I mean, I did a, I did a butt slide on this one at the beginning of the glacier. It, it went to this big pitch and then it went down onto the glacier. And it's only about a quarter mile across the glacier. But as soon as I did the glissade on my butt, I, I, I had already broken a pole and I had one pole and I was sliding down on my button because I'd just taken the lead at like 100K. And this other guy from Santiago, we'd been racing like neck and neck for like 100K. And I finally got a gap on him in the high country. And like I was pushing and I just, I saw like the tracks going down this way and like about 20 yards before him, I was like, well, that's a nice pitch to slide on my butt. I just jumped on my button and I was flying down and at the bottom, there's a crevasse. And so like, I like jabbed my pole into the snow to slow me down, jumped up on my feet and jumped across the crevasse and like, was like, okay, pay attention. You know, that was like wake up call. And so it was just, there was a lot of lows in that race where it was just mentally really hard, you know, especially my feet. I didn't, I thought I had bad blisters in that race. We drank unfiltered water the entire race. Um, so like I was having GI stress towards the end. Um, it was just, it was like not, even though I won, it was still like, it was mentally a really tough race. All right. Number three, uh, favorite food for a 200. So one source of calories to race 200 miles. What are you picking? Uh, well, I'm, you know, my carrying tailwind, um, so that I'm sipping on tailwind the whole time, but, um, I use a, uh, if you're seeing crew or an aid station, scrambled eggs and mashed potatoes and, and bone broth, my own bone broth, by the way, not the, not the races broth, cheap broth, but good stuff, nutrient dense stuff. Favorite piece of gear for a 200. I would say shoes. Yeah. I mean, shoes have have to be the number one because that's your pain point, right? If you look at like the back of a 200, if you went and asked the whole pack at the end of the race, what's going on? Well, you know, if they're gimping out, it's their feet. It's always feet. It's like feet, feet and GI are the number one, but probably in a 200, even more than a hundred is feet because it's just feet. If your feet fall apart, you can't do anything. You can't run. You have to walk. You feel like crap. It's every step is agonizingly hurts. So so Peter yeah. and I were both in Olympus for our, uh, pretty much all of our 200s. What, what was your shoe of choice? Um, I ran in a prototype ultra of the early prototype of um, the carbon shoe that's coming out, the Mont Blanc 2 carbon that's coming out in March. Um, I've raced in it this whole last year. Um, pretty much everything. Uh, that's will be the shoe for Cocodona. Um you know, it's like a 28 mil stack. Um, but it, the carbon, it's a flexible carbon plate. So it acts as like a, a rock plate as well. So you not only do you have cushion, you also have rock plate plus it's light. You know, if I think if we made a lighter version of the Olympus, I'd be interested in that shoe. 
it's just too heavy for me, you know, for, for, to run that. I did run, I did run it in a Moab for one section and I immediately went back to the carbon prototype. So that's what I'll run in is the carbon prototype probably in a combination of that and the temp five that's coming out in February. So the new temps coming out, but it doesn't have a rock plate, but it's, it's about the same stack height, 28, I think 28 or 29. And so both have good cushion, lighter, um, the new temp five lighter than the temp four. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked on those two shoes. Those are definitely like I've run in a ton of, I'm their test size. So I'm on the testing team. And so I get really early prototypes, um, and multiple prototypes. A lot of times they'll sometimes give me four or five pairs of that model in the year before it comes out. And so I've had a, the opportunity to really, really test that shoe. And that's definitely my shoe of choice now. All right. Last question. I think we all know the answer to this one, but it's how we end the podcast. Jeff, have you found your distance to empty yet? Distance to empty? No, but I'm, 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 I am, uh, well, I've been near there a couple of times in my early career, especially in my first hard rock in 07. Um, I, it was the first time I ever had to sleep. It's the first and only time I've slept in a hundred miler, um, to get a finish still. Uh, but yeah, I have not found it yet. Um, you know, I think that's part of ultra running, right? We're, we're always searching. All right. Well, um, we thank for your, you for your time and, uh, everything you've shared with us. That's been really great for our listeners. Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me, uh, on Instagram, um, and social at, uh, go Bronco Billy. Um, I also have my athlete website, go Bronco And, uh, it is my coaching site at the moment, but it is it, this week or next week. Um, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but we will, uh, we're going to launch a new, uh, rebrand of coaching site called, and it'll be at giddyupultra.com. Awesome. Fun chatting, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, giddy up. Man, Jeff Browning, what a legend. That was fun. Yeah, that was a ton of fun. I love hearing uh, about all of his experience, especially with Ultra shoes. I wear Ultra also. So hearing about that Mont Blanc prototype he's been in, uh, I can't wait to give that shoe a try. I've never tried a carbon trail shoe, so... Looking forward to that with the, the races I have on my schedule. I think it could be perfect. And then the other thing that really resonated with me is just that whole concept of the longer the distance, especially 200s, really shows your weaknesses. I think there's a lot of a lot of truth to that. And just for me personally, myself, it wasn't until my third 200 I really started to to, to figure it out. So um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, I'm excited as well to try out those new carbon shoes that Ultra's coming out with and. Uh... Yeah, it's just going to be exciting to toe the line at Cocodona with him and see how it all shakes out this year. Should we get into some categories here? Yes. So we can start with the first category, which is the performance of the week. And I have to give it to Andy Glaze. So this week he is doing his 200th 100-mile consecutive week, and he's shooting for 200 miles for the week, and he's already at mile 167, and he's got 36 hours to go or so. So yeah, it looks like that's definitely in the bag and, uh, congratulations, Andy. That's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Congrats, Andy. It's, uh, Andy's pretty well known in the ultra space and this is just, uh, Andy topping Andy, which is pretty cool to see. I'm sure he'll, he'll be at Cocodona as well going for number four. 
I think he's running Leadville too. So we'll see him and Javelina. We'll see him at all our races this year. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Congrats, Andy. All right. Is it time for let's get deep? Yes. Let's get deep. I'll kick it off this week. So as a reminder, let's get deep is a game for couples where Peter and I read each other questions for couple cards uh, on the podcast. And yeah, let's get deep. Time for your icebreaker, Peter. Too hot or too cold? Why? I'm going too cold at this exact moment because I actually am under the weather and battling uh, some sweating issues. <laughs> so so right now, nothing feels better than, than too cold. All right. Uh, for you, icebreaker. If you were a wrestler, what would your what would be your entrance theme song? First thing that comes to mind is Ender Sandman, which was uh, the song for the closers of the New York Mets and the New York Yankees, Mariano Rivera and Billy Wagner, back when I was like really into baseball. And I just think it's a really cool like entrance song. That's a cool song. I I love Metallica. So yeah. So I'll go with that. That's what first came to mind, and that's what this game's about, right? All right, deep. What do you remember first from our first date? From I, I guess I could say our first date was when we met at uh, the uh, Grand Canyon for Rim to Rim to Rim, and I remember being just really impressed that that you and Melanie crushed it. And uh, if I recall, you didn't bring uh, enough gels, uh, so you you crushed that with little nutrition. <laughs> Yeah, we were severely underfueled for that rim to rim to rim effort. <laughs> Deep. What is your most prized possession and why? My most prized possession and why? Um, lately, I've been a little less about the possessions and more about the experiences in life, as corny as that sounds. But I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't really care about my belt buckles. Um, I was actually just looking for a, uh, like a display case to put behind me for podcasting. So it's like featured in the video. So I'll go with my belt buckles. They're fun to collect. And they remind me of like the highs and lows of, of those experiences, which are, you know, really fun to reflect on. All right. Deeper for you. I should preface this with, with, uh, when Peter and I go travel for races and we're sharing hotels and Airbnbs. Uh, with uh, others, if it comes down to it, Peter and I end up usually sharing a bed if there's lack of room. So Peter, what's your favorite way that I make you feel good in bed? Yeah, I think it's really comforting the way the way you, you uh, bundle up your head with your headphones under a hat and, uh, <laughs> and listen to episodes of The Office. You're welcome. <laughs> Very deeper for you. What is something you do when no one is home? Um, what is something I do when no one is home? Man, this is tough. I don't have a good answer for this. I feel like nothing like too exciting or, or embarrassing or anything. Maybe I'll like shower with the door open and like watch a show or like play loud music or something from the TV. Yeah. Not a great answer for that one. Sorry. Sorry, peeps. That's right. I'll fish for something later. Yeah. Well, we'll work on it. Uh, that's always fun. Uh, we are going to order uh, an order from Galactic Snacks. We got the mystery bag, so we're going to add a candy review segment in uh, in future episodes, if not the next episode, maybe the one after. Uh, but open to other suggestions for fun post-show shenanigans. Until then, thank you for listening. Please let us know what you thought. We love reading the reviews. We love seeing when we get new subscribers on Apple and Spotify, so 
please, if you're listening to the show, if you like the show, uh, give us a follow. really helps us out. Write us a review. Let us know what you think. And we'll see you next week on Distance to Empty.